Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm your host, CEO Dan Mariasha. Stay tuned for my interview with best-selling author Bruce Henderson about his brand new book, Bridge to the Sun, The Secret Role of the Japanese Americans Who Fought in the Pacific in World War II, and his 2017 New York Times bestseller, Sons and Soldiers, which highlights the epic, previously untold story of the Ritchie Boys. Just one brief reminder before we delve into our conversation, check out our series Conversations with B'nai B'rith and all of our interviews on Facebook and YouTube. You'll find discussions with diplomats, historians, Holocaust survivors, Middle East experts, even the first Jewish-American male astronaut in space. And get our latest content by subscribing to the B'nai B'rith YouTube channel and liking us on Facebook at B'nai B'rith International. Well, following Japan's surprise attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, the U.S. military was desperate to find Americans who spoke Japanese to serve in the Pacific. Who did they turn to? The Nisei, or second-generation Americans of Japanese descent, whose parents had immigrated to America from Japan in the early 20th century. Eager to prove their loyalty to the United States, several thousand Nisei, many bravely volunteering from the internment camps where they were being held behind barbed wire, were chosen by the army for top secret training, and then rushed to the Pacific theater. There, these Japanese American soldiers became highly valued translators and interrogators. In his new book, Bridge to the Sun, the Secret Role of the Japanese Americans Who Fought in the Pacific in World War II, author Bruce Henderson captures this unforgettable story of patriotism through the eyes of six Japanese American US soldiers who helped save countless American lives, even as their families were being imprisoned in the internment camps back home. Henderson is also the author of the 2017 book, Sons and Soldiers, the untold story of the Jews who escaped the Nazis and returned with the U.S. Army to fight Hitler, which tells the incredible story of the Ritchie boys. Jewish families sent their young sons away from danger to safety in America, knowing they might never meet again. When these young men came of age, they became American soldiers determined to return to Europe to fight for their adopted homeland and for the families they had left behind. Astonishingly, post-war army report found that more than 60% of the credible intelligence gathered in Europe came from the Ritchie boys. Author and military historian Bruce Henderson has written more than 20 nonfiction books, including Sons and Soldiers, the number one New York Times bestseller, that was made into a highly rated television miniseries. A former newspaper reporter, magazine editor, private investigator, and field producer for television news, Bruce is a member of the Authors Guild and has taught reporting and writing courses at Stanford University and the USC School of Journalism. Bruce, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Dan. Well, let's talk about your new book, Bridge to the Sun, Secret Role of the Japanese Americans Who Fought in the Pacific in World War II. You tell some harrowing stories about the courageous Japanese American soldiers who fought Japan during World War II. What went into finding these details? What was the research process? And why did you decide to tell this important narrative through six of these soldiers? Well, the research, in fact, uh, of interest, I think, was when I was working on the book about the Ritchie boys, Sons and Soldiers, back at the archives, uh, and, and digging into those files and uh, 
coming up with uh, names of uh, Richie boys who were uh, still alive, who I could go out and interview. I came across the fact that there were several thousand uh, Japanese American soldiers who were trained at a different military camp in World War II, but the same kind of training that the Ritchie boys had, which was only in the Japanese language for the Pacific. And they were trained as interpreters and translators and interrogators. And I knew about the Japanese Americans who were sent to Europe, uh, infantrymen who fought there in the 442nd combat unit, one of the most decorated units of the war. But I did not know that there were several thousand of these Nisei, uh, American-born ethnic Japanese, who were uh, sent into the Pacific. And I had written already several books on the war and and in fact on the Pacific War and and didn't know that. So I made a note at that point that when I was finished with the Ritchie boys, I would come back and take a look at at the Nisei. And that is what I did uh, after Sons and Soldiers came out and and became a bestseller. And then I went back and I looked at the Nisei and I've really come to think of this almost these two stories as bookends. Uh, There are a lot of similarities, strong parallels between the Nisei and the Ritchie boys. Both were trained in secret for identical missions in opposite theaters of war and each endured prejudice and overcame distrust uh, to become among the uh, greatest assets of of the U.S. military in that war, because they knew the language, the culture, and the customs of our enemies. In the case of the Ritchie boys, it was the, the Nazis, the Germans, from which they had escaped as young, young boys. Uh, and for the Nisei, about the uh, culture, history, and language of our enemy in the Pacific, Japan. So I delved into the same kind of research for the second book, Bridge to the Sun, uh, at the archives and trying to locate uh, veterans who I could go out and interview. Well, tell us uh, about the the Japanese-American men in your book and where they fought. Now, they were really asked to do a little bit of everything, translate, to fight, to obtain military intelligence. What A a bit about their profiles. And and how did you select the six? Right. Well, that's a a really good question. Uh, And it, it comes down to a couple of very important qualifications, if you will. Uh, one is that uh, I wanted to get coverage of, of the war. Uh, the war in the Pacific was, of course, a very big canvas. And I didn't want, say, all of the f- fellows who I'm focusing on to f- be in the same place at the same time. Uh, I wanted, you know, some of one of them to at least to have been at Iwo Jima, another in Burma fighting with Merle's Marauders, another in Okinawa. And I really wanted to show how they were used theater-wise. So that was part of it, where they served. And also, well, a a bit of realism here is I needed either to have them alive and I could go out and interview them. And unfortunately, not surprisingly, uh, our veterans of World War II are becoming few and far between. I mean, at best, they're in their late 90s and um, uh, they're getting harder to find. And in and so if if they weren't alive for me to interview, I needed to have a record of earlier interviews that they had given, oral histories, uh, perhaps private memoir, 
that they had written uh, some kind of material that would allow me to enter their their lives, what they were thinking and feeling, not just where they were at and where they were fighting, but uh, the interiority, if you will, of their of their characters. So that very much went into the selection of the of the of the six who we follow throughout the war. And I followed an equal number of Ritchie boys and Sons and Soldiers. And I found that that was a, a format that, that really worked. Interestingly, in the case of the Ritchie boys, four of the six that I chose were alive at the time um, that, that I did my research. And in fact, uh, uh, two of them are still alive. Amazing, amazing guys, 99 and 100. And uh, of the six Nisei who I focused on, only one was still alive. And I had an, an interview with him, but honestly, he had lost a lot of his, his memory. And I, I met him, obviously, for the honor of, of sitting there with him. But if it hadn't been for the oral histories he'd done earlier, um, you know, when he could still, was still fresh, his memories were still fresh, uh, I, I wouldn't have been able to include him. And then all the others came from uh, you know, these oral histories and, and, and private correspondence. I reached out to all of the families, anything that your father, your grandfather left in the way of diaries, letters, uh, any private memoirs published or unpublished, uh, any interviews. A lot of them had given interviews to local veterans associations and able to get a hold of those. So the research itself, Dan, took about a year, maybe a year and a half. And then I then I started writing. So then that was another year. What about um, families? You know, I've seen you know, over the years various um, documentaries on different aspects of of World War II, and for for those um, uh, who fought who who were not here or maybe were not able to to give those interviews, oftentimes there'll be an interview with a, a son or a daughter, a family member uh, who may have heard. Uh, many of these stories firsthand. Uh, did you speak with the families as well? Oh, yes, I did. Uh, I did that. And uh, of course, from from my perspective, I would rather get it first person, which would be either, you know, in an interview or them, uh, the actual veteran giving giving an oral history. But no, the families, the families are an important uh, part of the research. Although I, I must say, that when my uh, book came out, Sons and Soldiers, I had a number of families uh, contact me and say, when you sat down with my dad and for those two and three days that you were here interviewing him, he told you stuff he'd never told us. <sighs> and, and we learned more about dad or granddad from the book than we did from him when he was still alive. And uh, I found that the case also with, with, with Anise and um, you know, there were vets uh, and are vets of war who um, it, it's not real comfortable uh, reliving uh, some of those experiences. And uh, from World War II, a lot of those, a lot of the fellows, you know, came back, didn't want to think about the war, went, got a job, went to school, raised families, and often, you know, didn't didn't share those kind of details until Many years later, what was sort of the impetus for a lot of them was when they started having reunions, like the 101st Airborne Division, for example, having its having its association reunion. And then they'd get together with their old buddies and start talking. And a lot of those groups began sitting them down and doing oral histories. So by then, though, that was already 30 years after the war. So 
Uh, I thought that was interesting. Now the, uh, the opening chapters of Bridge to the Sun are devoted to the early years uh, of these young men. What were the similarities, do you think, um, between their personal stories? They were either immigrants or the children of immigrants. Did it differ in any way or were they largely the same, let's say, as, as other immigrant groups who came to this country? Okay, well, the other thing that went into selecting those six that I followed throughout the war in Bridge to the Sun is they, are, they were all what are known as Kibay. Uh, and that would be, a, that was a Nisei or first generation uh, Japanese American whose immigrant parents sent their, usually their eldest son back to their ancestral homeland, Japan, in the 1930s for a couple of years of schooling uh, to meet the relatives, to uh, get, get to know the culture and language of, of Japan. And, uh, and then they came returned, and Kibe means returning, uh, to the United States. Well, when war broke out, you can imagine when the US Army s s decided that we needed you know, people who could understand and read and write uh, Japanese, uh, they, there was a, a presumption initially that any Japanese American knew Japanese, but that was not the case. Uh, a lot of the Nisei who had never left, say, California, uh, went to school, you know, at the local high school. They were, you know, I mean, there was nothing really Japanese about them other than their ethnicity, right? Uh, they didn't necessarily know the language and couldn't really be taught how to be fluent in it in six months, which is what the army needed. So the army looked for these Kibay who had gone over to Japan and had either gone to high school or even in some cases a year or two of a college in Japan and returned with those kinds of skills and fluency. And they were the most valuable uh, uh, to the army as interrogators, translators. So all of the six that I, uh, that I profiled were the Kibay. And I also thought that was interesting to bring in their um, their view, if you will, of of this of Japan uh, back in the '30s and uh, of the people, and uh, that's kind of where I got the title from, "Bridge to the Sun," because in a way they were, even though America was their homeland, uh, you know, Japan was their parents' homeland, and they they honored their parents by you know having spent time there, and uh, so there was a, a connection to this, if you will, you know, this enemy country. But uh, uh, I thought that was also a very interesting part of who I selected uh, and, and why I selected them. Where did the army uh, send these Japanese American men for this top secret training to become the translators, interrogators, uh, etc.? And, and yeah. how do you think that how do you think that the training that they had prepared them for what they did after the war ended? Oh, well, that's that second part of that question is, is interesting. Uh, and I don't know if I've been, been asked that before, but the, the camp where they were trained at was in Minnesota. And initially there was a, the army had a Japanese language uh, school in San Francisco, but uh, in fact, that started up just before the war started. But uh, then after the war, they had to move this school inland because, because of, they didn't want any, you know, any Japanese, even Japanese Americans, on the West Coast, and that was, you know, part of the roundup and the relocation and all that. So even the Army School had to move inland. So they went into they went to Minnesota, 
it was called Camp Camp Savage, and they interviewed or they trained um, about six thousand of these Japanese uh, Americans, and uh, and then they they sent them out when they were after six months, and again the the most of them, not all of them, but most of them went into that school fluent in Japanese, and then what they had to learn was a lot of the military stuff. What's the term for uh, you know, for uh, this kind of ma uh, maneuver, what's the uh, term for this kind of equipment, and uh, you know that kind of stuff was primarily what they were being taught at that camp. When they graduated, they were formed ten-man uh, intelligence teams and were sent overseas. And these small teams were attached to uh, larger units, either well from battalions to regiments uh, to army headquarters. And uh, um, to to give all of those levels of the army uh, from from the from the field from the battlefield up and beyond uh, that kind of language capability. And of course, when it came to interrogating prisoners of war, they had to be where they were captured, uh, close to where they were captured, which was close to the battle lines. That's the best time to interrogate an enemy uh, prisoner uh, to get information. That's you know they're the most uh, that could potentially be the most valuable uh, for you know our 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 forces and the other thing of course about the nisei that i that i loved and, and spent a lot of time on is okinawa was a um, it was called the last invasion and it was probably the it was the last big battle of the war and it was the the uh, uh civilian casualties were horrific uh, it would have been, they would have been even more so if it hadn't been for these Japanese language teams, our guys uh, in there talking to civilians hundreds at times in a cave that were ready to go in and blow themselves up because they had been, in, uh, you know, really brainwashed by the Japanese army that, you know, if they were captured by Americans, they would be brutally tortured and that wasn't a life that they wanted and it was better if they ended their lives and there were actual mothers holding their babies, jumping off cliffs. And our guys were getting to as many of them as they could. And in fact, I saw some statistics that after the war, they were credited with, uh, our language teams were credited with saving upwards of 100,000 civilian lives just by cave after cave after cave, getting these civilians to, you know, to, to not kill themselves. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was a huge part. And, and the training for the post-war uh, part of their lives. Well, now Dan, I'm I'm not sure if the training that they had for the war, which again was a lot of the military terminology, uh, I'm not sure how much of that went into what they did after the war or the success. I mean, a lot of these, all of these guys just came home like other vets. You know, they became. A lot of them became farmers because their their parents were were farmers, uh, or they you know got civil service jobs with with uh, their veterans credits, and uh, so I, I I'm not sure that you know when you're in military intelligence what you're learning specifically uh, can be translated necessarily to to business or after after war success. I don't know if that's true. Something that I think is um, on everyone's mind concerning the Nisei who's families were forcibly and uh, relocated to internment camps in the Western United States. Um, how, did, how did these soldiers fighting for the United States reconcile their service 
with the internment of their parents and their siblings uh, under, under those conditions out in, in the western part of the country. You know, we talk about this unthinkable juxtaposition at such a consequential moment in history. What, what kinds of observations did those that you included in the book uh, convey uh, uh, just about that particular part of their lives? Well, that was that was just over their over their heads uh, and 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 filling their hearts all the time. I mean, they several of the guys that uh, I profile were in fact recruited by the army out of a uh, a relocation camp, and so the irony of it, you can imagine, <clears throat> they are in this camp with their family because they aren't to be trusted, and now here comes the army saying, oh, we need you, (laughs) you know, we need you to volunteer for the special military intelligence school. Well, enough of them did. And and most of them, of course, were really, frankly, happy to prove their patriotism as Americans and were glad because initially they had been, uh, you know, the army had stopped drafting. Japanese Americans early in 1942. They just didn't want them in the army. Well, suddenly they've decided, no, we actually need these guys. Not everybody, though, in those internment camps felt that way. And uh, there was op- there was bitterness, as you might imagine. And, uh, and in fact, the volunteers in, in one of the camps, one of, my, one of my guys ended up telling this story when he volunteered in the camp and was actually with 10 other young men uh, given the uh, oath you know, to join the army, they took them out in the middle of the night by the back gate because they didn't want to drive them through the camp and have any possible uh, you know, demonstration or, or repercussions against their families for these guys volunteering what some people call the spy school. And so, you know, th- there, was, there were those elements and there were demonstrations in some of these camps. So these guys, here they are now in the army going to, to war uh, against, you know, their ancestral homeland at the same time that their families are being held uh, behind barbed wire. They're fighting, in, in, a, in essence, they're fighting two wars, which is the way I put it. So now, so now they're in the army. What kind of discrimination that they encountered, I mean, despite their, their major contributions that they were making, that they were about to make as they got in the army and then made as the war progressed, um, did they encounter uh, discrimination uh, of any kind? Yeah, and that was a question I asked all of them, and, and their, their answers, for the most part, were, were the same and, and also a bit of a surprise. They really said they, said they did not experience personal, individual uh, prejudice in the army. However, the the way the, the army considered them so valuable, these 10-man Japanese language teams, that they would take them out and put them in front of the battalion or the regiment or the division. And these guys might all be, for example, from Texas or, you know, I mean, some of these army units were formed, were National Guard units that came from the middle, the Midwest and maybe had never even seen a Nisei before. Uh, and they were introduced, and they said, "Okay, these guys, first of all, are Americans. They're they're not Japanese. They're they were born in America. They're as American as you guys, and they're going to be really valuable out there. And they're going to not only help us, you know, win 
some battles, but they're going to help save American lives. So treat them well. <laughs> well, and they, they pretty well got that kind of welcoming them um, from, the, from the GIs. And in fact, when they would land, you know, Iwo Jima, for example, they would actually uh, have their own security teams that would, uh, that would be with them to make sure that they weren't, um, you know, didn't become victims, for example, of friendly fire. But it was never a case that they felt threatened they were going to be shot uh, uh, consciously by a fellow GI. But in the case of Iwo Jima, word went out that Japanese soldiers were taking the uniforms off dead Marines and dressing in them and, and infiltrating the lines. And now suddenly we have a Japanese American interpreter who is in a Marine uniform, but he's a good guy. So, you know, they wanted to be sure that none of them were, you know, were accidentally killed. Some of them were. And I, and I did tell the story of, of one in particular who was, who was killed uh, by uh, accidentally returning from uh, a mission, and uh, he, was, he was mistaken for an enemy soldier. Well, the role of these men in saving lives on both sides really is, is nothing short of extraordinary. Can you talk about uh, Takajiro Higa, uh, who he was and, and what he did for the citizens of Okinawa? Yeah, and he was, he was Okinawan himself. He, um, his, both his parents were Okinawan, and, and he was, um, even though he was born in Hawaii, he was taken to Okinawa at a very young age, age two, and stayed there until he was uh, into, well into his teens when he returned to Hawaii. So he knew um, Japanese and also the Okinawan dialect um, from, from having been raised there. And uh, he, uh, when war broke out, uh, he volunteered for military intelligence and uh, went off to Camp Savage to be trained. And um, when he graduated, he joined the 96th Infantry Division at New Guinea. And he was in this 10-man headquarters intelligence team. And um, they went from New Guinea to the Philippines uh, shortly after uh, MacArthur had landed there. And they were already planning this invasion of Okinawa. And word got out that they they had on this language team an Okinawan and uh, who had, you know, this great knowledge of the uh, geography and the people and all of that. So he... He was called into the uh, the general's uh, headquarters, and uh, which was a bit, uh, as you can imagine, um, well, he, had, he thought he was in trouble when he was called in. But it turns out that they put in front of him these maps, large wall maps of Okinawa, and and started uh, uh, getting uh, briefings from him on um, on what to expect there. So he ended up working for about a month with the planners of the Okinawa invasion beforehand and uh, looking, at over go, looking at aerial pictures that had been taken, providing intelligence. And then when the invasion happened, uh, he uh, was at, you know, he was in one of the early units that landed on, on Okinawa. And uh, almost immediately he began uh, not only interrogating uh, prisoners, but um, importantly, uh, Going from cave to cave to uh, talk these civilians out of out of their uh, out of you know kill their their plans to kill themselves, and I I end the book with him fifty years after the war when he returns you know as as a man in his seventies to Okinawa 
and an article in the local paper is done on him and somebody reaches out to the newspaper that and wants to meet him and the next day this meeting is held and it's a woman who um who was in one of the caves and remembers him saying i am okinawan i would name an okinawan boy i am here and um she thanked him for her life uh for helping you know for convincing her to walk out of the cave and she had with her her daughter adult daughter a young adult daughter and she also thanked him because if you hadn't saved my mother i wouldn't be here and so that was you know such a moving end i thought of the of this book about the war in the pacific was going back to the fact that he these guys saved lives oh, what a great story uh, what do you hope readers will take away from bridge to the sun how does the story add to the, the larger story of World War II? Yeah, well, the takeaway, the, the takeaway for me yeah, uh, on this story is, is that um, I feel that um, there's really never been a better time uh, for this book uh, to be published. And I think uh, we, are, we are living in, an, uh, in a country here in America that unfortunately, still too often uh, prejudges people based on race and ethnicity and countries of origin. And I, I think uh, the timeless message of these young Japanese American soldiers of, of you know, courage and, and patriotism um, really should never be forgotten. And they were sorely needed at a really um, difficult time for our country. And and they step forward and there are, I think others like them that, you know, are, um, that are out there and that we need to, we need to honor and honor them. Well, let's talk about the other book, the, the other bookend, as you said, uh, Sons and Soldiers, the untold story of Jews who escaped the Nazis and returned with the U.S. Army to fight Hitler about the Ritchie boys. Um, how did the Ritchie boys earn their name and what did, they learn how how did what they did compared to what the Japanese Americans their their fellow soldiers were doing um, on the on the other side of the world? Yeah, the Ritchie boys um, were trained at um, a place called Camp Ritchie, which is uh, even though they weren't really during the war called the Ritchie boys, they became known as that after the war. Uh, Camp Ritchie was uh, a training area for. Uh, well, mostly German language, but they also had uh, uh, other fellows in there learning um, other languages because there were other countries in Europe, obviously, that were uh, that were occupied by um, by by the Germans and uh, needed, um, you know, to be uh, um, certain language skills uh, there. But also, um, they were about there were about ten or twelve thousand of of them trained in uh, at Camp Ritchie and about 4,000 of them were, were, were German speaking Jewish immigrants. And the reason, so I think that, well, they were so valuable was again, uh, just like the Kibe who had spent some time in Japan, uh, these, all, these fellows for the most part were born in Germany or Austria and got out uh, in the thirties, usually through uh, the effort of Jewish relief organizations, and and in many cases, 
were not able to, to get out with their own families, but were boys or very young men. And, uh, um, and then when, when the war broke out, um, because they were German speaking, there was also this kind of immediate distrust that you know they sounded they sounded German, and and we were fighting the Germans. But the fact that they were Jewish, I mean, there was a pretty big motivation for them, obviously, to want to join the fight against against Hitler. And the army figured that out pretty early on, that uh, we should bring them in and train them and put them in these uh, language teams. And it was very, very similar uh, to what was done uh, with, with Anisei when they graduated from Camp Ritchie, where again, they were, they were taught different military terminology and how to interrogate prisoners and what you could say and what you couldn't say to, to a prisoner of war, that kind of thing. They were put in 10 and 12 man intelligence teams and assigned to um, uh, all of the combat units that were getting ready to uh, go into, uh, into Europe um, after D-Day. Um, they were taught different interrogation techniques, for example. There were different uh, superior knowledge, for example, is where you overwhelm a prisoner with details that you already know about enemy units, and therefore they sort of open up and think, well, if they know that much, what harm is it to tell them about this? And so there's also a form of bribery where you, you know, use a chocolate bar and uh, or light up a cigarette in front of them and <clears throat> say, oh, you'll be happy to share this with them if we could just, you know, have a conversation, um, find common interests, they were told, so that if a prisoner, say, for example, is a soccer fan, the interrogator would talk soccer to the prisoner and have them forget that, you know, the interrogator wore a different uniform. Uh, last but not least, use of fear in which the interrogator learned a prisoner's anxieties and fears, for example, one threat that they would use. If you're not going to talk to me, then we're going to turn you over to the Russians. Well, there was nobody in the German army and Hitler's army that wanted to be turned over to the Russians. So often that got a lot of them thinking. Um, one thing they were told, though, was there was no such thing as what later became known as enhanced interrogations. They were taught <clears throat> not to lay a hand on the prisoners. And, and these these Jewish guys certainly had every reason in the world to slap a arrogant SS officer, and they came across them, you know, uh, quite often, but they didn't, and they felt that um, not everyone, not all of these enemy prisoners opened up and gave them information, but whatever information they got was going to be, had to be um, voluntary, because if you tortures, not only is it wrong, morally, but if you get information out of somebody because you're hurting them, they'll give you, tell you anything to get you to stop hurting them. So the whole thing of these enhanced interrogations, which we did, the United States did for many, many years after, is just wrong and, and doesn't, doesn't result in the best intelligence. So those are the kinds of training that they got. You know, when, I, when you think about it, and you've, you've just talked about it, but to think that um, these, these, some of these folks came over here. They were what, 15, 16 years old, more or less. They were teenagers. Right. I came over from Germany, escaping um, a, a terrible fate. And within a year or two, right, they were, they were in uniform going back to the same place. Um, and uh, I mean, I had a professor uh, as an undergraduate 
who came out of Augsburg. He, he was uh, a teenager um, and then um, went in to the army and, and then went back. So many stories, thousands, as, you, as you've said. And I, I think it's, um, it's really what a turn of history that, that these individuals would have the opportunity to both escape and then to go back uh, to serve their new country, the country that had given them this haven, and and to be able to uh, to help to defeat the enemy. Um, there was there was, Dan. There was an added motivation for most of these guys too. When I talked to them, they said most of them had lost contact with the families they left behind, and they had you know no idea what had happened to them. And so many of these guys told me I went over there hoping that I could find out where my family is. And you know where they were, and 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 to, you know, and that was part of their motivation. And at the same time, these these guys became part of the liberating forces that went into the um, concentration camps, and um, and not knowing if they would find their mother, their sister there alive or dead, and it just. It's a horrendous kind of um, thought and, and weight that they must have carried, you know, with them through the war. Did all of the uh, Ritchie boys survive the war? Oh, no. No, they did not all survive the war. In fact, my, my, in my book, we were able to, uh, we were able to find about something along the line of 60 of them that, that died in, in combat. Interestingly enough, the Army never produced a, a, a roster of uh, Ritchie boys, and we had to put that together <clears throat> one soldier at a time back at the archives, and it was just a multi-year project. Same with the Nisei uh, for Bridge to the Sun. In fact, in both of my books, the last 30 or 35 pages is a complete roster of, well, in the case of Sons and Soldiers, 2,000 uh, German-born Ritchie boys, uh, and, and are listed there, and I can't tell you that how many families have reached out to me since that book has been published? And my, my father, my grandfather, my uncle is in the back of your book. And I had, you know, any more information on him or I had no idea that he was a Ritchie boy. And uh, I really wanted to make that record. And I must say it was um, it was very important to me to run to run those rosters and identify those individuals. So many of the Ritchie boys went on to assume many positions of, of power and influence, uh, including Ambassador Richard Shifter, whom I know you interviewed uh, for the book, uh, who became a, a diplomat in addition to being a, a leading attorney uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, and a tireless fighter for Israel and the Jewish people. What, what is their legacy, Bruce, both as soldiers and after the war, with all of these, these guys who went on to, to really uh, succeed in, in so many different fields? Well, why did so many of them succeed in so many different fields? That's, I'm not sure I've gotten totally to the answer on that, except I keep kind of shaking my head and going, you know, back in those in the 30s and early 40s, these guys, what a, what a bunch of smart young men these fellows were. And, you know, that camp, I understand, Camp Ritchie, uh, there were you know, you it would be more like on a university campus because uh, from the, the walk to the barracks to the cafeteria, you might hear six or seven different language being spoken. Uh, the conversations in the barracks often were more like what you would hear in a college uh, political science course than in an army barracks. So these were 
there was a degree of intelligence and worldliness. Again, they had been born uh, over, you know, in Europe and been educated there. And then they came to this country, but they were all these, obviously these really, we, the army picked them well <laughs> for their missions because they were, they're not only bright, but unbelievably motivated. Uh, they did not have to be, you know, the average GI, you know, if you don't do this, then we're going to have you, you know, go do the garbage detail. Well, nobody had to say that to the Ritchie boys because they were motivated to do their job, to get over there, to, to defeat the Nazis, to see Hitler fall and to reunite with their families. Now, did they all succeed in doing that? No, many of them, their families were killed, were killed in, in the gas chambers. And uh, as were Dick Shifter's uh, parents, as I recall. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, but their motivation was that. And uh, uh, nobody had to sit them down and tell them what their job was. Well, you've called them bookends, but they are much more than bookends. Both of your books um, cover largely untold stories of courage and fortitude during World War II. And the Holocaust, uh, there certainly are. I mean, there's there are there's connective tissue here uh, between between the two books and the two stories. Bridge to the Sun: The Secret Role of the Japanese Americans Who Fought in the Pacific in World War II by Bruce Henderson is now out, and it's available wherever you purchase books. Bruce, you have so beautifully captured some of the most important stories of World War II, and we're so glad. You could speak with us about Bridge to the Sun, one of the last great untold stories of that war. Thank you for joining us today and best of luck to you. Thank you, Dan. Well, if you're looking for more of our programming, visit our website, benebrith.org, to listen to all of our conversations, podcasts, and live interviews. Thank you again to best-selling author Bruce Henderson for delving into his books, Bridge to the Sun and Sons and Soldiers with us today. And Thank you for listening in. If you like what you hear and you're in a podcast app already, tap the subscribe button to follow us. You can also listen to the show via the B'nai B'rith website. For my guest, Bruce Henderson, and for B'nai B'rith, I'm your host, Dan Mariashin. Talk to you again soon. <laughs>